this is your first time or first couple of times at Grace Community Church, I want to welcome you in the name of Jesus. We are currently studying through the letter of 1 John together on Sunday mornings. And so today we have made our way halfway through chapter 3. So I'm going to ask everybody that has a Bible, if you'll go ahead and turn there, 1 John chapter 3 this morning. Before we read our text, we're going to spend a moment asking God to meet us here this morning over His Word. So let's pray together. Father, we come this morning not in our own righteousness, Lord. Not. Far be it from us, Lord, to come into the holy place in our own righteousness, God. Our so-called righteousness, Lord. We come not as good people this morning. We come as Christians. We come in the name of Jesus. We come, Lord, to you standing in your finished work. Covered in the righteousness of Christ. Adopted into your family by grace. And we ask you, Lord, to encourage us today. We want to worship you. God, we want to honor you as we gather together as your church. A people called by your name. And we ask you to, to draw near today, Lord, in power. God, we read in your word. God, when your word goes forth, God... At times, Lord, you cause it to go forth with power, with the power of the Holy Spirit, with full conviction of sin. God, we ask for that week in and week out, Lord. You're the living God. You're the living God in a world filled with false gods. And we ask, Lord, that you would manifest your power and your life as we gather together in your name. Come be the living God in this place. Come be the God that encourages us, the God that lifts our face to the heavens. Lord, we ask you today, God, I ask you today, Lord, to help me to preach your word appropriately, God. Help me not to dishonor you, Lord, and what I say about you through your word. God, help us to be a church that discerns your truth, God, that seeks it out, Lord, that stands on our own two feet, God, and searches the scriptures for ourselves. God, help us, Lord. Help us with the strength that you supply, God, so that you are the one that gets glory. God, we ask you to break our hearts today, Lord, over our sin, Lord, and bind us up and comfort us with your gospel. God, we ask that you'd be present both to wound us and to heal us, Lord, to, to slay sin in our midst and to bind us up in the finished work of Christ. Lord, do this. We pray, God, this is our plea today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to turn with me this morning to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read our passage together beginning in verse 11. And I want everybody's eyes on these words. These are the most important words that you're going to hear in the next hour. These are words straight from God, hot breath from the mouth of the Holy One. This is God's word to us today. We're going to ask Him to use it. Verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. 
Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or, or talk. But indeed, and in truth, this is God's words to His church today. We want to ask the Lord the entire time that I'm preaching that He would use that word to do what it's meant to do in this church. That it would hit us in different ways appropriately. That God would use it by the power of His Holy Spirit that He would use it. So the theme that runs through that letter, through that paragraph that we just read, is the theme of loving other Christians. Okay? And I'll remind you that like so many things in the letter of 1 John, this is a test. Okay? And we've been talking about this, that the letter of 1 John is a gift from the Holy Spirit of God where He gives us tests to where we can discern genuine and false conversion. That we can apply the criteria that He gives us to discern who is really a Christian and who is not. And you can categorize these tests and the three basic categories in the book of 1 John, the first is the righteousness test, the second is the doctrine test, and the third is the love test. And this is what we're going into this morning. And really, that's not a clean breakdown of the book of 1 John because he keeps coming back to these tests over and over and over again. He repeats them. It's like cyclical. He, he revisits them. And that's why so much of our preaching is revisiting these same themes over and over and over again because that's how God has given us this book, these tests of life. And the truth behind all of these, okay, all of these tests, is that genuine faith in Christ, genuine belief in His gospel will always, 100%, every single time, it will work its way out in real life, in real practice. Okay, John didn't make this up. This is not the only place in the New Testament that you can find this teaching. This is actually Jesus' teaching. This is what He taught us. And John is just unpacking it. Listen to Matthew chapter 7, verse 18. Jesus says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. No arguing with that. I'll read it again. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. And then He says, Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. No matter how much human language is filled to, on the end of that sentence to argue with it, it, is, it stands. It, it is an authoritative teaching of Christ. Bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And that's what these tests are meant to diagnose. This is a gift from Christ to His church. We've been revisiting this over and over and over. Okay, And we saw this last week. God wants you to know... God wants this church to know corporately, and God wants you to know today who is really a Christian and who is not. He wants to give you a grid, 
that you can discern true and false conversion. He wants it obvious. The devil wants it muddy and unclear. God wants it black and white in your mind. He wants it evident. He wants it obvious. So I'll back up and I'll read the last verse that Ryan taught last week. Chapter 3, verse 10 says this. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John is just continuing that same theme of discerning true and false conversion. That righteousness test, we talked about this a little bit last week. That is meant to confront a false convert who says they believe in Jesus, but their life is immersed in habitual sin. Okay? This is a gift from God to confront them in this false conversion. And so what does that mean in our culture? It is a gift of God towards this church culture. It means the Bible teaches that you even, even though you claim to be a Christian for 60 years, if the habitual pattern of your life is sin, then you are not a Christian. That's what the righteousness test means. Okay? So let's, let's, let's apply that in a few specific ways. Hot button issues, right? Our culture has this, this word that is thrown around a lot called addiction. Okay? What does the Bible teach about Christians and true converts and addiction? The Bible teaches that there is no such thing as a Christian who habitually gets drunk. Okay, the, the, the world says they're an addict of alcohol. They can't help it. Nothing they can do about it. The Bible says you cannot habitually practice drunkenness and be a Christian. God woke me up from false conversion with a verse that said exactly that in Galatians chapter 5. It is an oxymoron. There's no such thing as, as someone who practices habitual sin and is a Christian. The same, the same can be said for a drug addict. There is no such thing. As a genuine believer that continues on in the habitual practice of their life is to use drugs. Never. Okay? It's common in the church culture, but the problem is, is 1 John. That's the problem. We can't fit these experiences into the Bible. He told us with this righteousness test that we cannot walk in sin. So what happens? Brothers and sisters, what happens when human experience headbutts God's word? What do real Christians do? They don't argue with God. They bow to the book and they say, let God be true and every man a liar. God is right. God is right. Even if a hundred million say, yeah, but I believe, I know I'm a Christian. And they feast at the table of the world. They're wrong. They're wrong. God's truth exposes these things. It's a grace and a mercy. It's a grace and a mercy from God. One more. What about someone who feasts at the table of the world and habitually practices sexual immorality? Same exact thing. There is no such thing, biblically, as a Christian that continues habitually in sexual sin that is a genuine believer in Christ. That is a mercy. That is a mercy towards, towards you this morning. That God gave us this criteria to wake us up. That's the righteousness test. Okay? It is needed in our culture. It is needed in our culture. 
The love test hits false conversion from a little different angle. Okay? But it does the same exact thing. Again, you're not saved because you do right. And you're not saved because you love people. These are tests that God has given us to discern true and false conversion. Have you really believed the gospel? What does the love test do? This is what we're going to unpack today. Okay? Biblically, there is no such thing as a private relationship with Jesus that does not work its way out in love towards other Christians. Say that again. Biblically, there is no such thing as a private relationship with Jesus that does not work its way out in love with other Christians. This is also greatly needed in our generation. Why? Because our generation is infatuated, our area of the country is infatuated with this idea that I have this private faith in Jesus. Don't talk to me about that, man. Me and Jesus are fine, fine. I have this private relationship with Jesus and we're fine. Why are you talking to me about the gospel? I'm fine. It's just me and him and I'm fine. And the love test confronts us in this. It confronts us in mercy and grace to wake us up to false conversion. And so you tell me, evangelists of Jesus, stewards of the gospel, ambassadors of Jesus. How many times have you heard something like that? Okay. That you begin to talk to someone about the gospel and someone says, yes, I prayed the prayer to receive Christ when I was 16 or 20 or whatever it is. Okay. And then you begin to dig further. Oh man, I might have a brother in Christ right here. So you begin to dig further and there is no spiritual pulse in that person's life. And so one of the things you might ask is, so tell me, where are you fellowshipping with the body of Christ? What's your relationship been like, brother, since you were 16 with the body of the Lord Jesus, with the brothers and sisters in Christ? You know what's so common? And you just shake your head if you heard this. When you begin to talk about the church, you know what starts falling out? You know, talk to me about Jesus. Don't talk to me about the church. The church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with the church. And so in a moment, they are, they are venting, but they're at the same time, they're exposing themselves. They just laid all the cards on the table of what they think about the body of Jesus. Okay? They want to love Christ, but they don't have any love for the people that belong to Him. Okay? And this is a test... For false conversion meant to wake us up. Are you, or, or somebody, maybe they don't say, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And they say, yeah, church is fine with me. You know, I, I go to church and you say, well, tell me about it. What did your pastor preach on last week? What is, what's, some, what's something that y'all are praying towards and going after together? Where's the brothers that you're fellowshipping with? It's like, and you dig in. It's really, they go Christmas and they go Easter and they go maybe two more times a year. To ease that conscience, okay? But they're still laying their cards on the table. They're showing you that they want to be okay with Jesus and have very little to do with His church. And so I want you to think about a husband in this room that loves his wife, okay? Husband in the room that loves his wife. Aaron Poole loves his wife. And I want you to think about 
this. If I say, Aaron Poole, I love you, brother, but I cannot stand shame. He's about to jump over the table and choke me out unless the grace of God restrains him, right? It's offensive to say that. And in the same way, it is offensive to Jesus to say, Jesus, I love you. I'm all about you, Lord Jesus. Just me and you, Lord Jesus. But I cannot stand your bride. Your bride is a hypocrite. It's offensive to him. And it's a mark of false conversion. It's the love test. It's the love test. The Bible teaches that every Christian will love the church. Every Christian will love the church. And so this passage today confronts this cultural idea that you can have a right relationship with Jesus and have little to nothing to do with the church of, of God. And I want to say, just to cut off anything else, we're not talking about the universal church, okay? We're not talking about you sitting at home and having fluffy, great, high lofty ideas about I love the people of God all over the world. This passage is going to end with a practical, everyday example of a local church, the people that you see, the people that you are exchanging words with. So this is it. This is it. This is the word of love. This is the love test. And this is what he's confronting. Let's, look, let's read verse 11 again. Let's read verse 11 again. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. So from the very beginning of Christianity, from the very beginning, this has always been the message that we love one another. Why from the beginning? Because this is what Jesus commanded us. This is an authoritative command that comes from the lips of Christ himself. Of Christ himself. Listen to John chapter 13 verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Anyone who has a relationship with Jesus, a saving connection to Jesus, wants to obey Him. And He just commanded us a heavy commandment that we should love one another as He has loved us. So it's already heavy. We should love one another. And He just shot it through the moon when He says, even as I have loved you, you should also love one another. This is this is heavy, supernatural, authoritative demand that Jesus gives to His church. Now, if you were to read the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, you would see this repetitive thing come up, especially in the New Testament, more than anything else to describe our relationship between one another and the church of Jesus. This is it. We're supposed to be, more than anything else, loving one another. Listen to how He says it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, alright, you got my attention Peter, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And we want to do that. As a local church, as disciples of Jesus, we want to obey Him. We want to move forward in love. We want to grow in love towards one another. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 14, Paul calls this commandment a fulfillment of the entire law. And you think about that. 
Sometimes you hear some, some phrases like, man, aren't you glad that, you know, we're not under that, all that Old Testament law anymore. I can never do that. You know, somebody might really love barbecue or bacon and they just, they can't even wrap their mind around, man, I can never keep that law. It's so hard. Okay? So hard to do. But biblically, this is the fulfillment, which means that this commandment is just as hard as keeping every commandment in, in the law of God. Every single one. So this is supernatural. I want you to feel the weight of that. That this, this sums them all up. Sums them all up. It is a supernatural commandment. We cannot obey it in our own strength. And yet, every single Christian has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep this commandment. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So every single Christian, that's true of you, okay? You have this principle in you, God Himself is in you, and this principle is moving you towards more and more love for the brothers, okay? You want an easy way to remember it? Fish swim, birds fly, and Christians love other Christians. It's just what they do, okay? Because God is in us. God is in us. This flows from the new nature. It is natural after conversion for us to love one another. For us to love one another. Jesus told us, if you love the mission of God and you want to see all nations... Bowing down and worshiping the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you want to see Him exalted over all that He has made, over all the false gods. I want you to listen to what Jesus told us about this commandment and the all nations mission. He said that there's one commandment in God's word that is going to be a mark of authenticity before this unbelieving world. John chapter 13 verse 35. By this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I want you to think about all the things that he could have said. By blank, they will know that you are the real deal, that you belong to me. But what he's told us is by our love for one another, there's going to be a mark of authenticity that goes out into this world. They're not playing games. They are the real deal. They really belong to the Lord Jesus. But look, because they love one another. So the church is designed by God to be the one place in all the world. That all these walls of hostility that separate different groups of people, different personality types, different socioeconomic All the walls, anything that separates the church of Jesus is supposed to be the one place. Where the Lord Jesus tore down every single wall of hostility. And we love one another even as Christ has loved us. And this is exactly what happened in the early church. I want to read you a quote. This is a second century church leader named Justin Martyr. And he's describing Christian love. Listen to him. He says, we Christians, we used to value the acquisition of wealth. And possessions more than anything else. 
Now we bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and we refused to associate with people of another race or another country. But now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we even pray for our enemies. Do you see how anti-world that this is? That we would love one another. That we would love one another. Christians have always been known for this. Genuine Christians have always been known for their love to one another. I want to say two, two things before we dive into this passage further. And the first is this, that, that the love that is described in this passage is like so many other things in 1 John. This is habitual love, okay? This is the practice of your life that is being described. What's in view here in these tests is not a snapshot moment where you did something good for just a moment or you did something bad for just a moment. What's in view here is what is the pattern, the process, the habitual practice of your life. Do you make it a habit? It is, is it the habit, the pattern that you love other Christians? Okay? And, and John does this with the verb tenses in this letter. You've heard this many times. The present tense uh, in this letter stands for this a a idea of continual action. Not just snapshot, but continual action. Okay? And the second thing I want to just sharpen the focus on is this. That the commandment in this passage is to love one another. It's to love the brothers. Okay? And I say that for, that for this reason. There are other places in scripture where we are commanded to love the world. That we are commanded to love the, our neighbor as ourselves. We're commanded to even to love our enemies. But this passage puts a bullseye focus on our love for brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I want to put the focus bullseye exactly where the Holy Spirit put that focus. And I want that to be what you have in your mind right now. What is my habitual attitude to brothers and sisters in Christ? What is the habitual pattern of my life to the church of Jesus? Do you know anything of Psalm 16, verse 3, by experience? Listen. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So when you begin to talk about the body of Christ, is it more like that false convert that says hypocrites, or is it more like David and the Lord Jesus that says the people of God, those saints in the land, they're excellent. All my delight is in them. I love them. There's nowhere else that I would rather be than around my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love them. I love them. Even as Christ has loved me. Is that the habitual pattern that you have laid down for yourself? So that's the focus this morning. That's the focus. Now. Our passage gives us two examples to fill out Christian love of what it doesn't look like. That's a negative example. And then it gives us an example of what it does look like. We're going to look at both of those, but we're going to cover the negative, negative example first. Negative example comes in verse 12. This is not what it looks like, brothers and sisters. Here we go. We should not be like Cain, 
who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So this, he references us back to the book of Genesis, four chapters in the Bible, in the story about these two brothers named Cain and Abel. And if you have read the Bible or you've been around the things of God, you know some of how this story goes, right? Two brothers bring an offering to the Lord. Cain brings an offering of the fruits of the ground. He brings some fruits to the Lord. Abel brings blood to the holy living God. Abel is accepted. His offering is accepted by the holy God. And Cain's offering is cast to the side. It does not measure up. So this is the story. Genesis chapter 4. You can go read this for yourself. That story ends with Cain being rejected by the living God and rising up and killing his brother. And the word that John uses in this passage for the word murder is a brutal word. The word means butcher. It means slaughter. This is a bloody scene. And this is supposed to, to zero us in. Four chapters in the Bible. Four chapters. One chapter after sin enters the world. This is what sin does to a man. The third human being that lived in God's world butchered his brother. Slaughtered his little brother. He was a murderer. Murderer. This is what sin does. John tells us that Cain was of the evil one. You see that in verse 12? Jesus tells us what that means. He's a child of the devil. He's, Satan was his father. Listen to what Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says to a group of Pharisees, he says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. So Cain was a child of Satan. Satan was his father. And listen to how that's worded. His will was to do what Satan desired. Satan didn't make him do anything he didn't want to do. His will perfectly corresponded with the will of his father. His father lied to him and seduced him to murder. And he wanted to murder. He was of the evil one. This is Cain. And what was his motive? The Bible says his deeds were evil. And his brother Abel's deeds were righteous. Let's just translate that into modern English. He was jealous. Okay? His brother was accepted. He was not. He was jealous. He was envious. The fact that he brought first fruits to the Lord and not blood shows you that he's self-righteous. He thinks his hands are clean enough to offer an offering to the Lord. He needs no blood, needs no atonement, needs no forgiveness. That's the same thing that works righteousness still does. It is full of pride. And this is this man. He is full of pride. He wants to be praised. He wants to bring his good works to God. And for God to accept him on the basis of what he's done. He wants praise. He wants praise. And when he doesn't get it. He lashes out in murderous hate. Towards his brother. And so Abel is the standard. Right? He's the standard that God used to awaken this self-righteous man. You don't measure up, right? So instead of repenting 
and coming the prescribed way and bringing the blood in repentance and faith, Cain, instead of coming and meeting the standard, he just offs his brother. You see that? So instead of meeting the standard, you just try to get rid of the standard. That's self-righteousness. That is jealousy and the envy that consume this man. And what I'm going to call this this morning is this is the presence of righteousness. The condemning presence of righteousness in the midst of the wicked. Righteousness in the midst of wickedness does this. Just like light in the midst of darkness, it exposes things. It exposes and the Bible uses this story of Cain and Abel as a prototype. And we talked through this not even six months ago. That that story becomes a prototype for humanity gets split in two groups from Genesis chapter 4. The children of God and the children of the devil. The children of God go the way of Abel. And the children of the devil go the way of Cain. Go the way of Cain. And what this means is that same wicked heart. That we're talking about right now. That was at work in Cain. Is the same wicked heart. That is still at work. In the unregenerate heart. In the entire lost world. This is still what's at play. And brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm warning you of this. This was us. We don't read this and say. This was not us. This was us. Listen to how Titus 3 is worded. Titus 3. 3. We ourselves. Were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was you, apart from Christ, passing days on this planet in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And I just want to warn you, catch this on the front end, okay? There's this gut response, this gut reflex to say, not me. Not me. I don't know about you, man, but I would never kill anybody. I'm not like Cain, okay? And, and I would tend to agree with you on the surface that, that, sir, friend, you might, it might be true that you would never kill anybody, that you would never take the knife and butcher another human being. Okay? But what I want to remind us of is something was at play in the man's heart before he ever raised up the knife and jabbed it in the body of his little brother. And that's the same wicked heart that's at work in every person who is unregenerate. It is a sinful, wicked, evil heart of hate. No matter how nice this old lost grandmother is, at the deepest core of who she is, outside of Jesus, she hates. She is filled with envy. She has an unregenerate heart. An evil, wicked heart. And so I'll, I want you to think about this. I want to give a practical... How, how should we as the people of God respond to this story that you should not be like Cain? And we have to respond in a different way. Say, okay, check. Holy Spirit, I got it. Don't kill anybody. Next. Moving on. Okay? How can you respond? How can you really let this, this story and this example hit you in the way that it's meant to hit you? And you have to catch these sinful, wicked things in the heart before they ever hit the hands. This hate, this envy, 
this jealousy. So here's some questions I want you to think about this morning. I want you to really meditate on this both now and this afternoon and get some quiet time with the Lord of an answer to these questions. How do you respond? How do you respond when someone else in this church does better than you? When they just flat out do better than you? How do you respond to it? How do you respond when they make more progress in the Christian life than you? When they teach better Bible studies than you? When they sing better worship songs than you? How do you respond? What's your gut reflex? They're making more progress in the Christian life than you. They're more fruitful in the mission than you. What's the gut reflex? When you're put side by side in that example with Cain and Abel and another brother or another sister is better than you. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do when someone else in this church is commended for a good work that they've done or for godly character and you are overlooked and you are not commended? What's your gut reflex in those moments? Is it to praise God for the grace that He's poured out on another brother or sister in this church? Or is your gut reflex resentment, envy, jealousy, that something isn't sitting right in that moment. And I want to encourage every single one. This is a wicked sin. This sin of comparing ourselves with one another. And trying to outdo one another. Okay, This is a wicked sin to be repented of. This is not a little sin. This is the same thing that grabbed a hold of Cain's heart. It's the same thing. It's that envy, that hate, that jealousy that grabbed a hold of a man. It's not a little sin. It's murder in seed form when you do that. It's the seed form of murder. It's the seed form of you butchering a brother or a sister. It's a massive sin. It's, it's, it's a massive sin to be repentant of. And I want to give you the same word that God gave Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. If this is your disposition, if you drift towards envy or resentment for a brother or a sister in this church, here's God's word to you, brothers and sisters. Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at the door. It is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you and you must rule over it. You let that go. You don't rise up in the power of the Holy Spirit and put that sin to death. That is a devouring beast that will overtake you. Will overtake you. It will produce untold amounts of wickedness in your heart. It is a sin to be repented of, to turn from, to kill by the power of the Holy Spirit. So John tells us that Christians are not like that. That's not their habitual practice. They're not like Cain. But then he turns the corner. He says, but they are like Abel. We're not like Cain, but we are like Abel. Which is, which is why he slips this verse uh, in here in verse 13. It says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So what's he doing here? He's talking about, you know, don't be like Cain. Don't kill. Don't hate. Don't envy. And then he switches and he says, hey, don't be surprised if somebody hates you. So he's playing off this story. You're not like Cain, but you are like Abel. And this is a promise from God's Word. That every single Christian, 
Every single person who is righteous, who is a follower of the Lord Jesus, every single one of them will be hated by this world. No escaping it. Don't, don't even try to escape it because it's impossible to escape it. You will be hated by this world. And so what this means is that the ones who follow the way of Cain, the children of the devil, until Christ returns, until the very end, they are going to hate the ones who follow the way of Abel, the children of God. It is inevitable that this happens. And verse 13 is a commandment that this is not supposed to surprise you. Not supposed to surprise you. What was surprise look like? Can you believe that they said that about us on, on, on Fox News? Conservative media of all places. Can you believe that? You will be hated. You will be hated. It's not supposed to surprise us. We are supposed to expect it. And sometimes it's going to come from the pagan world. But sometimes it's going to come from false converts in the believing community. You say, what do you mean? Cain was a religious man. He was a man that offered something to the Lord. And the people that murdered Jesus weren't atheists. They were religious people. And so we're to expect this from both ends. Okay? Sometimes this is going to come from within. And why? Why are they going to do that? Why is it perpetually going to be like this? Because we are going to be just like Abel was to Cain. We're going to be that condemning presence of righteousness in this world. We're the condemning presence of righteousness in this world. Say, so what do you mean by that? We're just better than other people? That's not what the Bible teaches. We've been transformed. We have been Genesis 1 creation. We were created again. There's a creative miracle that happened in every Christian. We're not better than someone else. We're new species. We are new creations empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. The world will not hate you because you keep a few rules or you become a religious person. The world will hate you because of Christ in you. It is offensive to this world. And so I remind you that the, the early church did not get in trouble because they, they were really nice and gave a lot of money to hospitals and did a lot of nice things for people. And the world didn't say, I hate that. But they hated them. They put them to death, slaughtered them like sheep. Why? Acts chapter 17, verse 6 and 7. says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king named Jesus. Keep all the religious rules you want to keep. But the moment that you begin preaching that is the moment that this world unleashes the fury. That there's another king. There's a king over all the kings of the earth. His name is Jesus. You want to have another religion? They're completely fine with it. But you want to have an exclusive way to the Father? A one true God and His Son that makes every other God on planet earth a false God? You will be hated. You will be hated. He is the King of Kings. Christians, genuine believers in Christ, they come under not one God among many. We serve the one true and the living God. And the message that we preach is not one of many ways to get to heaven. Jesus says that He is the way to the Father. The only way to the Father. You preach that in this world, you will be hated. You will be hated. Why? 
Because the world hates that condemning presence of righteousness. It hates the exclusive path. You know that? Like all Cain had to do was repent of his pitiful works righteousness in those offerings. Repent and come by repentance and faith and offer the blood to the holy God. And God says you would have been accepted. If you do right, you would have been accepted. That's all he had to do. But he even, hey, he recalled at the thought of how exclusive it is. That there's one way to God and no other. He would rather kill his own brother than to, than to come the prescribed way, the exclusive path. They will always hate the exclusiveness of the gospel. And we are a reminder of it. We are a reminder of the gospel's exclusiveness. We are also offensive because we expose sin. Because we expose sin. And that can happen by you just being a godly man or a godly woman. 1 Peter 4 talks about Christians refusing to practice debauchery. And it said that they malign you. They're so caught off guard that you would never do these things with them. So they malign you. Just by you being a godly man and a godly woman in this world, it can be offensive. Okay? And then we turn the corner and we begin to announce and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And we announce the law of God that all have sinned, all have fallen short of this holy God standard. We're not good people. We're rebellious people to the core. And you're not a victim of sin. You're a criminal in the courtrooms of God. And we have begun to announce that message and the world will hate us. The world will hate us. I want you to attach this verse about the biblical Jesus. And I want you to have this one on the very front of your mind. Because this one is under attack almost all the time. Okay? Social media Jesus has no room for this verse. John chapter 7 verse 7. The world hates me. This is Jesus talking. So you say, Jesus, why does the world hate you? And Jesus says, the world hates me. Because I testify against it that its works are evil. Why does the world hate Jesus? Because he said you don't measure up. You're not good people. He testified against this world that its works were evil. And they hated him for it. And they'll hate Christians for the exact same thing. This is the condemning presence of righteousness. Expect it. Don't let it catch you off guard. Expect it. This world will not hate us because we are religious. It's going to hate us because we're transformed into Christ-likeness. Something supernatural has happened to us. Okay? We're not Mormons. Something supernatural has happened to us. We're a new species. Look at verse 14, 15. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We're going to sit in the gospel for a few minutes. We're going to remind ourselves of what has happened to us when we believe this glorious message. We, we are Christians. We didn't learn how to just keep a few rules. We were transformed from one realm to another realm. We have passed out of death and into life. How awesome is that? We have perfect tense. One time lasts forever. We have passed out of death and into life. Anybody have any better news than that this morning? We have passed out of death 
and into life. The Bible teaches us that by nature, we were born into this state of death. Okay? Spiritual death. We were born into it, and we existed in it. It is called death. We had a heartbeat. We breathed air in this world. We ate meals. We enjoyed things in God's creation. Yet the Bible teaches that we were dead in our spirits. Alive in God's world, but dead. Some of us spent many, many, many years. I spent 20 years on this planet as a corpse walking around in God's creation. Some of you spent even more than that. We lived in God's world. We lived in the world the Creator made. But we lived in such a way that there was no reference to the Creator God in our life. We were dead. The Bible says that we were dead. We were dead. We were dead. We didn't need some help. We needed resurrection. We needed life from God. That's how helpless we are apart from Christ. We were dead. Dead to the value of our souls. God made us and there's a part of every human being that never dies. That spends all of eternity, millions of ages, in eternal punishment or eternal life. And we were dead to the value of it. We're dead. We were dead to the purpose of life that God gave us life, breath, a pulse. For His glory to be worshipped, to be served. We were dead to the end to which we were created. We had no idea of why we were alive in this world. We were dead to the conviction of our sins. We might have thrown some intellectual language out. Like, oh yeah, we've all sinned. But we didn't lose a millimeter of sleep over our sin. We were dead to the conviction of our sin until the Holy Spirit woke us up. We were dead to the glory of Christ. Some of us heard the gospel from three years old into our early 20s and it never hit us with converting power. We were dead to the glory of the gospel. We heard it over and over and over and at the end of this sentence, just like church meetings like this, we walked out and we said, who gives a rip? Who cares about the things of Jesus? Let's go get a coat. Let's go do something fun. We were dead to the glory of Christ. We were dead to, to eternal punishment. That we were headed to a lake that burns forever and ever. And we were dead. Oblivious. That we were about to drop off the cliff into eternity. Eternal punishment and the wrath of God. Running a hundred miles an hour towards eternal punishment and laughing at sin. Dead, dead, dead. Unresponsive. This was us. Every single one of us. We were dead. We were hopeless in this world. We were as hopeless as a corpse in a coffin. We could not do anything, nothing, to solve this problem. We were dead. We were dead. Absolutely hopeless apart from God. Ezekiel chapter 16. I want you to turn there for just a moment. I want to show you how dead we were. How hopeless we were. Ezekiel chapter 16 pictures lost humanity as a half-aborted baby. I want to remind you that you were like a half-aborted baby. 
And really this is a picture of what's called infanticide. Which means that a baby is born in this world and the parents don't want it. So what do they do? They just take that newly born baby and they could care less about it and they cast it out in a desolate place. They throw it on a trash heap. They throw it out in the middle of the field and let it die. And let it die. This was abortion in a primitive way. And this was us. Ezekiel 16 pictures every single one of us as a baby unwanted by our father Satan. We were born into this state of death and our father could care less about us. Our father Satan wanted us dead. He cast us out into this field. And we are pictured as a baby that's unwanted and it's wallowing. That's the word it's used. It's wallowing in its own blood. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4. And as for your birth, on the day when you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. You were hated. You were hated. You were dead. And your old father hated you. And then, and then, and then what happens? But God. But God. We're sitting there. No one wants us. We're cast off. We're moments away from death. But God. But God. He intervenes into the state of death. Into the state of death. Look at verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. That was us. That was us. We were born into the grave. We were dead in our sins. Wallowing in our blood. And the sovereign Lord, the powerful, mighty God of mercy, walks by us, sees us wallowing in blood. And an authoritative word of compassion says live. And we live. Born again. New creation. Resurrected with Christ. This is the new birth. This is the new birth. Hallelujah to His holy name. I pray that you see yourself and every brother and sister in Christ in that story. You are helpless. You are helpless. May the Holy Spirit give us right thoughts of ourselves. Low thoughts of ourselves apart from Christ. Low thoughts of ourselves apart from Christ. We didn't decide to live a better life. A sovereign power move happened to us. We weren't coming out after the things of God and going to a few Bible studies and all of a sudden tripped into the kingdom. We were dead in sin and God raised us from the dead. That's what it took to save us, to make us new. You were transferred, transformed from death into life. You have been redeemed. You have been saved. Not in that state anymore. Now you're in the state of life. You passed out of that state. You have been delivered. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. 
says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And I just want to pause and just drive that in. Do you know that that happened to you? Or do you have other people in your mind right now? I know it happened to them. They're growing in grace. They're men and women of God. If you are a believer, this happened to you. Do you see yourself like this? Raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. Been given eternal life with God. Could have just rescued us from death. But we pass from death into life. We have been given eternal life. John 17 verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The one who was wallowing in the blood of his own sin. That rebellious one now has been adopted into the royal family of God. And now we know the one true and the living God. Eternal life. Do you see yourself like this? Do you know, Christian, that this happened to you? That this happened to you? That you were born into a grave but raised with Christ Jesus. Listen to Psalm 113, verse 7. He raises the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes. Raises the needy from the ash heap. You are burdened on a pile of trash. And He raises you up and makes you sit at the table with the royal family. This is eternal life. You have God. You now possess the Son. You know God and you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life. This is what He's rescued us to. Eternal life. The Bible teaches that eternal life, the life of God Himself, has been unleashed in every Christian. Can you even imagine something more powerful than this? That the, the power of the Creator is now at work in every believer in Jesus. Eternal life is our possession. That means that God Himself is now at work in every believer. It's a powerful thing. Like leaven working through dough. Ever seen that? Or like you walk down the street and you see this mighty tree. That started as a little bitty seed and grew up through a crack in the asphalt. And then all of a sudden it busts that, that sidewalk all to pieces. This is the power of God that is being unleashed in our life. He is taking over. There's a new principle, a new power that's been planted in Christians that is moving us towards righteousness. Towards holiness. Which is exactly why he said, that's how we know I want you to see how carefully this is worded. How do we know that everything that we just talked about happened to us? That we love the brothers. It's the mark. That's the pulse. That's the vital sign. That's the evidence that that transformation has taken place. That that, that, that has taken place. We have been hit. I want you to think about regeneration as somebody standing on train tracks and being hit by a freight train going 200 miles an hour, we have been hit by the freight train of regeneration. Therefore, we love. We love. And that example pales in comparison to the power of God that was unleashed in our life when we were born again, when He made us new. This is why we love. Because we have passed from death into eternal life. This is why we love. It's evidence of salvation. It doesn't earn it. It's the mark. 
the mark of authenticity. And I want to warn you, before we jump into the next one, that you cannot keep this commandment that we're looking at today unless that has happened to you. You cannot love one another as Christ has loved us unless you have passed from death to life. If you try that, you can try it for 60 years and you will die a failure. This is supernatural. The new birth comes before you can ever keep this commandment. This commandment. You need to, to be empowered by God through conversion in order to keep this commandment. And you can't even really understand what you're aiming for unless you're a Christian. Because He said, love them as I have loved you. And unless you've had a personal encounter with the love of Christ, you don't even know the standard. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, so here's the plain sense. You can't love unless you know what love is, and you don't even know what love is unless you believe the gospel. Unless you had a personal encounter with the crucified Christ. Why? Because this is how we know love. He laid down His life for us. That's the mark. That's the standard. That's the supreme demonstration of the love of God. And this gospel is the only thing powerful enough to rescue us and to break the power of that heart of Cain that we have on the inside. It's powerful. And I want to remind us of it this morning. He laid down His life for us. That's how He preaches it in, in just a simple phrase. And I want you to think about how much glory... Is in just a few words of Scripture. He laid down His life for you. He laid down His life for you. This is the greatest story ever told in human history. This is the story of God the Creator that made all things, rules all things, the Sovereign over all, becoming God the Savior. God the Creator became God the Savior. How did He do it? He laid down His life for you. God the Creator took on a human body why? To lay down His life for us. To lay down His life for us. God voluntary, voluntarily acted. You notice how that's worded, right? He laid down His life. Who laid it down? Nobody made Him do it. Jesus voluntarily, willingly chooses to lay down His life for us. This is the sinless Son of God. Volunteering to die for sinful, rebellious creatures. Creatures. This is the love of God displayed in sharpest form. Love of God poured out at the cross of Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You ever thought about it like that? God saved you from Himself. You were saved not from Satan, not from bad choices. God saved you from God, and He did it voluntarily. He voluntarily laid down His life for us. Listen to John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. I love this. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. 
And I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father willingly, voluntarily hammered to the cross for sinners. This is the love of God poured out. He laid down His life for us. So I want you to see that. Back to Ezekiel 16. What are we doing? We are not checking off boxes of being good people and stacking up merit. We are wallowing in our own blood. We are running 100 miles an hour towards eternal wrath. And what does He do? He says, oh, I know what I'll do. I will hammer myself to the cross for them. Those rebellious ones. I'm the eternal Son of God. I will take on the human body. And I will take their place on my bloody cross. I will take my own wrath for them. This is the love of... You ever been loved like that? You ever been loved like that? That the judge steps off the bench and he takes your punishment. Your judicial sentence is poured out on Jesus. And while they're hammering him to the cross, what is he screaming out? I'm going to pay him back for this. Not what he's saying. He's saying, forgive him, Lord. Forgive him, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. Do you see the love and the mercy of God poured out on us at the cross? This is the supreme demonstration. That's the mark. That's how we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Swallowed our wrath. Swallowed our wrath. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone laid down his life for his friends. So you ask yourself, what could Jesus have done for you more than he has done? Is there any more that he could have done for you to demonstrate his love for you and laying down his life for you? This is the greatest demonstration of the love of God. And I want us to pray as a local church that there would be a place in our affections when we begin to talk about the death of Christ and the finished work of the Lord Jesus, that we would be people that are almost, we go to another realm. All of our affections, we need to be joyful people. We need to be people filled with praise to God. But more than anything else, when we begin to think about the cross, that we have almost like we tap into another layer of joy and praise and adoration when we begin to talk about the Son of God crucified on our behalf. On our behalf. And I want you to pray for the leaders of this church, myself and Ryan, that we would be used by God week in and week out to exalt the work of Christ. We want you to pray that for this church. Charles Spurgeon used to talk about preaching the gospel. Christ crucified like a man hitting a nail over and over and over and over again. And we want to be known for that. This is the one note song that plays throughout eternity. That Christ died for our sins. And we want to hammer it over and over and over again. Why? This is the power of God for salvation to any person who believes it. The Son of God crucified in your place. That's a message filled with spiritual dynamite that can lift you from the grave. The Son of God crucified for us. This is the standard of Christian love. And once you receive this gospel, Christ commands that you turn and you love your brothers and sisters in the same way that He has loved you. And then He gives us a practical, everyday example 
of the way that this is supposed to be playing out. Look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So I want you to think about this. We are in a danger of being real theoretical about the Christian life at, at, at the expense of practical, at the expense of being doers of the word. So what do you mean, brother? I think every Christian in the room would agree with me that it is easier for us to have high thoughts of loving everybody than it is for us to actually love somebody. Okay, It's easier to do that. We need practical. We need this stuff working out in every day, Monday through Saturday. It is easier to think about loving the universal church, whatever, you know, whoever that is. Uh, you might know five people that even belong to it, right? It's easier to have high, exalted thoughts of the people of God than it is for you to stand face to face and love a brother or a sister in Christ in a practical way. That's why we need this example. And so he gives us this. And this scenario is lined out with two preconditions. There are two preconditions to this scenario. And the first is this. You have the world's goods. If you, brothers and sisters, have the world's goods. And we talked about this word a few weeks ago. The word bios means life. And what that literally means. If you have enough possessions to keep you alive in this world, you're a candidate. Okay? If you have the world's goods, that's number one. Condition number two. And see a brother in need. Okay? You're not responsible for things that you don't know about. This is you being brought aware to a brother or a sister in Christ in a real need. If you have the world's goods. And if you're aware of this need. Then I want you to, to be warned about how you respond. Yet you close your heart against him. The Bible says... How does the love of God abide in him? Abide in him. So if you, in this room, if, if you make a practice of shutting your heart away from meeting real tangible needs, if that's the practice of your life, the Bible tells you the love of God is not in you. God's love is not in you. That means it doesn't matter how many times you prayed the prayer or what facts about the gospel you affirm or don't affirm. Okay? It means if that's the practice of your life, the Bible really teaches this. You are not a Christian. God's love is not in you. You see how practical this book gets? It is meant to do that. This is coming into everyday discernment. Are we in Christ or are we not? And this is a mark. This is a mark. Someone who makes a practice of slamming the door of compassion in the face of a needy brother or sister is not a Christian. Why? Because they're not good enough? No, it just evidences the love of God is not in you. The love of God. God's love is not in you. Christians don't make a habit of doing that. Why? Because the opposite of that is true. God's love is in us. God's love is in us. Think about how powerful that is. That thought that God's love is in this brother or this sister. And so when we love in these practical ways, we're not just imitating what Jesus did for us. Okay? We are doing that, but we're doing more than that. It's not just an imitation. 
It's actually a manifestation of His love coming through us. How beautiful of a thought is that? That God has placed His nature in me. I was dead. I remember a time in my life where I could care less about anybody in this world except for what I could get out of it. But now what happened? God's love lives in us. His love. The same love that drove Jesus to the cross is pulsing through the soul of Christians. His love is in us. In every Christian. In some degree. Romans 5 verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit. Whom He has given to us. So I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that the love of God lives in you? Now we're talking Christianity. Okay, We're not talking just do something. We're talking about wake up to the finished work of Christ. The love of God lives in you. Do you believe that about yourself? That God has placed a deep impulse in every member of this church to get low and serve the body of Christ. To deny yourself and meet tangible needs across this body that His nature is in us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And you might ask this. If it's so natural, then why does He finish with this exhortation? Verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So that's a good question, right? If it's so natural, if His love is in me, then why would we need to turn and tell Christians, love one another. Don't just talk. Make sure you're loving with deeds. Why would you need to do that? And the best example I can give is the same reason that you would dig around a fruit tree, a fig tree, and you would put fertilizer on it. Every Christian is fruitful. Every Christian loves. And what he's doing here is he's stirring up more. We want this to abound more and more across the body of Christ. And so I'm, I'm laying this exhortation on all of us that we would not settle for talk, but that we would press through and love this members of this local church, brothers and sisters in Christ with deeds of mercy. That we would use our resources in this world to manifest the love of Christ towards our brothers and sisters. Even at great sacrifice to ourselves. Life laid down is the picture. So I want you to think about this. I, I, want, I want to read Matthew 25 over us. And I want, I, we're going to close with that, that paragraph. And as we read it, I want you to think about this. Where does this play out in my life? All that warning at the very beginning, we just finished off at an extremely practical place of when someone's in need, what do you do with your money? What do you do with your possessions? So as we read this passage of Scripture, you search yourself. Lord, where is this love playing out in my life? We want to grow in these things all across this church. Turn to Matthew 25. We're going to start in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and then the king will say to those on his right, Come, 
You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we come as your people. And we ask you, God, to cause your word, Lord, to bear fruit in your church. God, make us exceedingly fruitful for your own glory and for your own praise. God, and we want to be that authentic mark to this world. We want them, we want them to know, Lord Jesus, that you transform lives. We want them to know, Lord Jesus, that your gospel is powerful. God, help us to love one another. Cause it to abound all across this church. Lord, we pray that you would convict who needs to be convicted and that you would encourage us all, Lord Jesus. Amen.